Hi everyone, this is Pastor Brett from First Baptist Church here in Cherryvale, Kansas, and I want to welcome you to our Cherryvale First Baptist Church sermon podcast. Our prayer is that the Lord will speak to you through His Word for His people. If you're looking for a church home, we encourage you to join us for our celebration service every Sunday morning at 1045. It's a great time of praising our Lord and hearing from Him. We are just a group of passionate followers of Jesus Christ with a desire to worship Him and take His message of hope to the heartland. If you want to find out more information about our church, you can look at our website, www.fbcherryvale.org. My sermon will begin in just a moment, and thanks again for listening. I invite you to find your Bible this morning and turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 3. As you're turning there, think about this. What if, what if one of your children came up to you and asked this question? What if they said, Mommy or Daddy, does God want to save me? Now, did you have to think about it? Did you hesitate for even a second? Because if you did, then this message today is for you. Moms, dads, grandmas, grandpas, anyone who is responsible for a child, when our sons or our daughters, when they ask that question, we must be able to look them in the eye and say with all the certainty we can muster and all the passion we can summon that, yes, my son, yes, my daughter, God wants to save you. This morning we begin a new series entitled, Can God... In this series, we're going to look at six of those huge questions many people have concerning the capabilities and the desire of God. We, along with many others, we often misunderstand, we often doubt God's power, we doubt His promises, we doubt His presence. Too often, we're just like those Israelites. When they were called out of Egypt, their attitude and their hearts, they could be summed up in two words as they were traveling down the road. Those words seem to voice all the time where they asked the same question, can God, can He? They doubted everything about the Lord along their journey. This morning we look at, can God, can He save me? Many people mistakenly think, well, they've done things that were so bad that God, He would never want them. God could never save them from their sins. We're going to see this morning how that thinking, how it's wrong. Absolutely wrong. God can and God will save anyone, anyone and everyone who wants to come to Him by faith. Let's look at our text for this morning. Please stand in honor of reading God's Word. Our key passage for this morning, John chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. A very familiar passage for everyone. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to read it together out loud. It's on the screen above if you don't have your Bibles handy. We're going to read it together. Here we go. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son to whoever. Let's stop there for just a moment. Whoever. That's a big word, right? But that includes who? Every person. Even you. Even that family member that claims to be an agnostic. Even the one who right now wants nothing at all, nothing to do with God. It means them. It means everyone. Let's pick it up again. Whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we just thank You for this truth that we've just read together in this passage. Lord, may these words come to life in our hearts May we live them out each and every day. May we understand that Jesus came for each and every one of us. Everyone here, everyone that's listening in to our podcast, Jesus came for all so that we could be saved through Him. 
Lord, help us understand these truths this morning as we unpack how we can be saved by Christ through his shed blood on that cross. We love you, God, and we praise you. We thank you for working in us, for working in our hearts, working in our lives, and working in your church through your people. It's in your name we pray, and all God's children said, amen. You may be seated. Let me begin by saying that the passage that we just recited, it's really a continuation of a conversation that Jesus had with a man named Nicodemus. We're going to step back several days in Jesus' story to try to get ahead on understanding this man, Nicodemus, and the reason that we had to come up to this passage for this morning. John the Baptist, remember, he had been out preaching at the Jordan River, preaching this message of repentance, a message that told the people around him that they needed to turn away, turn from their dead religion that they were practicing, and turn to the living faith that was coming, the coming Messiah. John's baptism, he said, was evidence of the change that had taken place in the lives of those people. He was hammering on the conscience of those Israelites, seeking to prepare them for this coming king. But his message, his message of repentance, his message of baptism, it was an insult to the Pharisees. It was an insult to those religious leaders of the day. They rejected the ministry. They rejected the baptism of John. They saw no need at all for repentance. And how dare this man, how dare he even suggest that they submit to an ordinance that was reserved for the filthy Gentile proselytes. Besides all of that, they were thinking, who was this Jesus guy anyway? Who is he? They were looking for a Messiah. And Jesus, well, let's just say he didn't fit the description that was of their Messiah. This man was but a common carpenter. He came from the village of Nazareth. He was a nobody to them, but yet it was his very presence that was arresting. He may have looked just like every other Jew of the day, but there was something about him. There was something in his eyes that pierced the soul. There was something in his speech that stirred the hearts of those that heard him speak. For a few days, all was quiet back then. After the Pharisees, after they went home, Jesus, he spent a few days with his new disciples. Men like Andrew and Peter, John and Nathaniel and Philip. There may have been others there. It even seems that Jesus' mom was with them too. Because later on it tells us that they were attending a wedding in Cana. A city that was not far from his hometown. And while he was there, he did his very first miracle. Remember that? He turned water into wine. Then he left there and he attended the Passover in Jerusalem. And then when Jesus, when he got to Jerusalem, he went into the temple. You're going to see that beginning in John chapter 2, verse 14. Look what it says. It says, in the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. You know, this makes me think here of all the movies that have ever been made about Jesus. You know, we see these movies about Jesus and they always depict him as what? This serene, this calm man, just this godly man while the world around him just goes crazy all the time. It's like those movies, they give us an image of Jesus acting like he's on Prozac or something. But you see, that's not the image that we get of Jesus when we look at John chapter 2. Let's pick it up in verse 15. It says, in making a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Let me tell you something. What Jesus did that day, it was no small thing. And as he did it, it caught the attention of everyone in the city. The religious leaders, they wanted to know, why did he do it? What proof does Jesus have of his authority to go around behaving in such a manner? 
Jesus left there that day, and the Bible says he stayed in the city. He continued performing more miracles and building up a greater following than he had when he came into the city, so that now there's no telling how many people were in that mob scene that was following Jesus around, seeing and hearing him speak, this man who has come into town, this man who is now challenging the establishment of the day. It must have been quite a scene. Now, none of this had gone unnoticed by this man we're talking about today named Nicodemus. You see, Nicodemus, he was a Pharisee. He was a ruler of the Jews. In other words, this man was on the Jewish Sanhedrin, or what we would call the Jewish high court. The rabbinical tradition makes Nicodemus one of the three richest men in all of Jerusalem back in Jesus' day. Just imagine him. Imagine this man walking through the streets of Jerusalem after dark, just hoping for an appointment with this man named Jesus. And as he's walking around, he's probably thinking to himself, You know, we sent people to talk to this man, John the Baptist. I don't understand why he is baptizing people. It's not legal. The only person that can get baptized is a heathen that converts over to Judaism. Are they trying to say that there's a new religion in town? Impossible. The law is all that anyone needs to live a life that is dedicated to God. These great principles given to us by God, they've been defined down to these strict laws that anybody, they they can all understand them, and that is all you must do is obey them. So I don't understand this man. I don't understand Jesus. I don't understand his teachings either. He must be a prophet to be able to teach with such power and conviction. He's done so many great and wonderful miracles. I don't understand why he got so angry the other day at the temple. I mean, why did he turn over all those tables? Why did he run those merchants out? They were just in there doing their job. It's not illegal. The people need sacrifices to offer for their sins. You know, I should have sent a servant to ask these questions. No, no. I need to have this conversation with him for myself. I need to understand what this man Jesus, what he is all about. And this is where our encounter starts. It's in John chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. I'm going to read the entire encounter here because I believe it is a very important context for our lesson today. So John chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, and for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness of what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Friends, 
I believe it is plainly clear here that Jesus, He came into the world to provide salvation for all. This thing called salvation, it is extremely important. You see, what you do about your salvation will determine where you spend your eternity. Before we go any further, I want to look at a definition here because too often we Christians, we forget that we're kind of like this little subculture ourselves. And, and by that what I mean is we have our own dialect that we use sometimes. There's things that we say and many times they're confusing to those who don't know our lingo. There are those who might be new to the faith or maybe they've always been part of the faith family and they just haven't learned what the definition of these words mean. So one word. There's one word I want to define today. One word that Jesus used in verse 17. Let me read verse 17 again. It says, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. The word I want to look at there is that one word, saved. You see, we throw that word around an awful lot, don't we? We do it in our sermons. We'll do it in our testimonies. We do it in our conversations with other people. But... There are those around us who may not understand exactly what we mean when we say that word saved. Now let's just go to the definition first. The word saved comes from the Greek word that's spelled S-O-Z-W. It's pronounced sodozo. It literally means to save. It means to keep safe and sound, to rescue from danger, to rescue from destruction, to save one from injury or peril, to save a suffering one from perishing, that is a suffering one from a disease, to make them well, to heal them, to restore their health, to preserve one who's in danger of destruction, to save or to rescue, or to save in the technical, biblical sense of things is this, to deliver from the penalties of the messianic judgment, to save us from the evils which obstruct the reception of the messianic deliverance. If this word saved, if it has that meaning that we just talked about there, then why do we use it when we're speaking of the soul? It's because of this. Man in his natural state is a sinner. Romans 3.23 clearly tells us, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. When we came into this world, we arrived in this world already under a death sentence. That's stated to us in Romans 6.23. It says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, unless a person is saved, then they will die in their sins. And they will spend eternity in this place we call hell. And they'll be forever separated from the presence of the Almighty God. Therefore, we must know how we can be saved. And that's something I'm going to explain as this message unfolds this morning. Now, we know what it means to be saved. And I think we all want that for ourselves. Even though we may have doubts about our past, we may have concerns about whether God, whether He wants us, whether He'll accept us with all the baggage that we have, with all the sins that we've ever committed in our lives. Church, friends, fellow sinners, we're about to find out how to be saved. And we'll answer that one question that remains for many people. Can God save me? That is, if you do what the Bible says and you receive this plan of salvation, can God, can He really save you and keep you from going to hell? And friend, I can honestly say with all certainty, yes, God can. Allow me to give you those reasons why this morning. How can one be sure God can save them? Under number one, it's because of this, God's promise to save us. 
there are several things we need to know about God's promise to save us. The first is this. We should know that this is an old promise. In the very beginning, God made Adam and Eve in his image. And then they decided, well, we're going to sin. Okay. Now, God made a promise in that Garden of Eden. Look what he did in Genesis 3.15. It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now... This promise here, understand, it wasn't made to Adam and Eve. This promise was made to the serpent. It was made to two seeds. You see, the first seed was the seed of the serpent. It was that seed of rebellion, that seed of sin. It was made up of all who walked in the way of Adam, turning against God. But now the second seed that was promised, it's the seed of the woman. This second seed is set over and against the first seed. The two seeds are at war with one another, and God has decreed that this second seed, it will ultimately win. Now, from our vantage point, we know that the second seed is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the one who was bruised for our iniquities, and he crushed the serpent's head underfoot. However, we should realize that God's promise to provide a means of salvation, it's even older. It's older than that promise in Genesis. Look with me at Revelation chapter 13, verse 8. It tells us here that Jesus is what? The lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Then Peter, he takes it even further when we look at that at 1 Peter 1.20, where he says, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. These verses here. Understand, they tell us that even before God created man, even before they were as a sinner to be saved, long before the sin had even entered the world and we needed to be saved from it, God had a plan already in place to redeem sinners. His plan is older than mankind. His plan is older than sin. It's older than Satan and it's older than hell. That's amazing. Throughout the Old Testament, there are glimpses of this promise, the promise to save sinners. We see it in Isaiah 43, 11. It says, I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. And then in Isaiah 45, 22, it says, Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. God has always been, and God will always be a saving God. He promises to save you. It's as old as God himself, that promise, yet it's as new as the day when you call out to him, call out in faith to God. Not only is it an old promise, but under B, it's also an ongoing promise. While God's promise, while it is older than the world, and it's even older than mankind, yet it still has all the power of the almighty God behind it. The promise he made is valid for you and me today, just as it was before us. Look at these verses here. First one is this, John 5, 24. It says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Second is our key passage, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Then look with me at Acts 16, 31. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. This promise has never and will never lose its great power to save people. Understand, our God is a saving God. Nothing will ever change the truth that he wants to save you. It's an old promise. It's an ongoing promise. Then under C, we see it's also an open promise. 
God's promise of salvation. Understand, it's not limited to a select few, the chosen ones, the elite. It's a promise that is offered to all, to everyone. There are several passages that bear this truth for us. First is Revelation twenty-two seventeen. It says, The Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Then look at Romans 10, 13. It says, for everyone, not a few, not the elite, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's clear, friends, from these verses that anyone who senses a need for salvation, they can be saved by the grace of God. The only requirement for participation in God's plan of salvation is this. It's for sinners only. That's what it's for. It's for them. If you think you're good already, you cannot be saved. If you think you're righteous enough all on your own, understand, you cannot be saved. Look at Mark 2.17. It says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. Jesus himself said it right there. He didn't come for those who call themselves righteous. He didn't come for those self-righteous who think they're going to be the savior of the church or the world. Newsflash, Jesus is our savior, right? He didn't come for anything we can do, anything we think we can do. No. Who did he come for? Jesus. He came for the lost. He came for them alone. He came for those who know and understand there is nothing, nothing outside of him. There's nothing you can practice in your faith other than Christ that shows you're going to submit your lordship to him and you're going to submit your life to Christ. Truth is, if Christ, if he would reveal our hearts here this morning, there might be someone here who by their actions, not their words, but by their actions, that might prove that their hearts are not yet fully submitted to Christ. And Jesus says to you, I came for you. Come follow me. Friends, the fact is this. Understand, we're all sinners. Everyone here is a sinner. All of us are sinners. Therefore, we all qualify for God's plan of salvation under those terms. The problem is this. Not everyone in the world is willing to admit it. They're not willing to admit their guilt. They want to hold on perhaps to their perceived legacy or maybe a tenured status or something they have in their, their life. But understand, that's a failing salvation. Because listen. The Bible tells us very clearly that we're all, everyone here, we're all in sad shape apart from God. In fact, it tells us that the best we can produce out of our own self-effort is what? Isaiah 64, 6 tells us what? We have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like what? Polluted garments. Our efforts are all like polluted garments. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. In simple terms, friends, we need what God has to offer in his plan of salvation. How can one be sure God can save them? It's through God's promise to save. It's old, it's ongoing, and it's open to everyone. Next thing I want to look at under number two, it's because of God's power to save us. God has the power to save you and me. Now, now that we know that the Lord has promised to save us, those who believe, those who want to receive his plan of salvation, we need to know he can do what he says he can do. Just how does God go about bringing us? How does he bring you and me? How does he get us into a relationship with himself? And when a sinner does go to God for salvation, how do we know? How do we really know that God can do what he promised he can do? 
perhaps spending a few minutes looking at God's power to save, we can clear up any confusion we might have in that area. You see, we must understand He has the power to call the sinner. No one can be saved when they just feel like it. You can say, well, God, I feel like being saved today. No, it doesn't happen that way. The Bible says the sinner apart from God is dead. Look at Ephesians 2, 1. It says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. That is, they possess, we all possess no spiritual life at all. We're unable to approach God on our own. We're like it says in Romans 3.11, no one understands, no one seeks for God. So, the only way a sinner can be saved is for them to be called by God. You're called by God. Just John 6.44 says this, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So God, He draws us into this relationship. Salvation, understand, it is a process in our life. It's not an event. You don't come to the front up here or where maybe you're sitting at home with your parents or with another relative and you don't pray a prayer and, and it's an event that happens and we celebrate it. No, it's a process that you go through. But it always originates with God. He's the originator of that. It never begins with us. Now, not only does He have the power to call the sinner... But you see, he also has the power to convert that sinner. When a sinner places their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, God does the work of grace. He does a work that is so powerful in their life that it cannot be explained in any human terms. Things such as a profound spiritual nature take place. Things that boggle our mind take place in our lives. Here's just a few of them to help us understand what I'm trying to say here. All sin is immediately and completely forgiven. Blows the mind, right? The sinner becomes a child of God. How can that be, right? The sinner is delivered from that sin. The sinner becomes a joint heir with Christ. I mean, that's amazing, isn't it? The sinner inherits a heavenly home. The sinner becomes a saint. Wow. You see, even the carnal Corinthians, they were called saints. When Jesus saves you, He changes you forever. Thank God there's a power to save the sinner that God has. How can one be sure that God can save them? First, it's because of God's promise to save us. Second, it's because of His power to save us. We're going to look next at number three, because of God's provision to save us. And through this provision, what God did was He provided us with a substitute, somebody to step in for us. When Adam and Eve, when they sinned back in the garden, man fell under the curse of God. For a man to be redeemed, a man had to die. However, not just any man would do. You see, the one who died, they would have to be perfect. They would have to be without sin. They would have to be without wickedness. They would have to be without blame. God, knowing our need and our inability to do anything about it ourselves, He provided for us, He provided the perfect substitute. He gave us none other than His own Son. In fact, the gift of God in Christ proves God's love for you and for me. When Jesus was on that cross, God, what he did was he took the sins in your life and he transferred them over to Christ and he paid the price. He died there on that cross to pay the price for your sins. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made himself to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Mm. You see, 
God provided the perfect sacrifice. When Jesus, when he was on that cross, his death and sacrifice, they were sufficient to provide the saving needs of the entire world for all of eternity. He gave himself once for all that we might be able to be free free from the grip of sin in our life and we might be able to experience God experience his perfect salvation for us which is available to all it's available to everyone through the Lord Jesus Christ and only through him his was a perfect a perfect sacrifice for you and for me it will never have to be redone. It was a once and for all sacrifice that Jesus made. Many in our day want to do away with the blood of Jesus. It is, oh, wait, we, we can't talk about the blood of Jesus. But let me remind you that without the precious blood of Jesus, without what he did for us on that cross, understand it is not possible for us to have salvation. Not possible for any man to come to God without that shed blood. Far too many think that, well, just a little religion is enough. I'll just come to church every now and then. Oh, man, I'll tell people I read my Bible. Oh, I'll pretend I pray, and they think that is good enough. Understand, friends, religion cannot save you. Religious rituals or practices cannot save you. Showing up at church every now and then cannot save you. Nothing saves but faith in the shed blood of the Lamb of God, the death burial and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ God provided a plan of salvation so now we can come to him and we come to that all crucial question if God promises to save us if he has the power to save us if he's provided us the means to be saved then how do we go about it how do we go about being saved the answer for that is found in the verses we started with way back earlier this morning John Chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The Bible here, it tells us under no uncertain terms exactly what a person must do to be saved from their sins. The answer is to simply believe in him. It's explained to us in Romans 10, 9 and 10. It says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe with your heart that God raised him from the dead, it says you will be saved. For with your heart one believes and is justified. And with your mouth one confesses and is saved. These verses tell us that to be saved, we must acknowledge the claims of Christ and we must transfer from our faith in our works or our religions or our self-efforts or our self-righteousness, whatever it may be that we're putting our faith in, things that we may be trusting, we must put them aside and we must begin trusting in Jesus and trusting in Him alone for our salvation. Friends, salvation is very simple. But see, here's the problem. We want to complicate it. So many times we try to complicate this thing called salvation. The best thing we can do is this. Simply take God at His word. Take Him at what His word says for us. And then accept it as what it is. The free gift of God. A free gift to us of salvation. We've looked at God's promise to save us. God's power to save us. God's provision to save us. Let's close asking, what about you? Can God save you with all of your doubts, with all of your fears, your addictions, your bad habits, all of your sins, all the wrongs you've ever done in your past? Can God save you?
That's a tough question for some of us. But quickly, let me just say this. You're not the first one to ever have these doubts. You're not the first one to ever have the fears, the addictions, or whatever it is that you are going through about following Christ. In fact, Christians through all of generations have had these very same questions. They sometimes think these things. Am I just talking to myself? Do I really believe this? Do I really believe what he's saying? Am I really sorry for my sins? Do I? Okay, can I really give up those addictions I have in my life, those things that I love to do, I just want to do? Uh, can I change? Thankfully, God is greater than all of those things. Amen. In fact, the fact that we turn to Him at all is only possible because of His graciousness to us, working in our hearts and working in our minds, working in our lives. Look with me in Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 1 through 10. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but God. Don't you like those two words? I love those two words, but God. Understand, God can change things. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. There's nothing you can understand. There's nothing you can do on your own to get salvation. It's through the grace of God. Look at it, verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Friends, that's a fantastic description there of God's work for us. And in verse 8, it teaches us there that even faith, even the faith that we have is a gift from God. Look, in the end, we're not saved by the strength of our belief. We're not saved by just our simple desire to be changed. We're not saved based on our need for change in our life. We're not saved based on our certainty about Jesus and his claims. We're only saved by the cross of Christ. We're saved by God's act of mercy toward us, his act in history to save us and show himself to us on that cross. So will you allow God to work in your heart? to save you from your sins, to grant you access to heaven, to adopt you into the family of God, will you? Let me just close with this. Most of you know I spent about 26 years in the corporate world, and, I, and during those years I spent many hours on an airplane traveling back and forth across the country. There was one time I boarded a plane, it was a smaller plane, and, and I was subject to the law of gravity as I do it. The, the plane was outside, so we had to go outside and we had to go up these steps that were leading up to the plane. And as I lifted each one of my feet getting up to that plane, going up there, I had to use my power to take each step. That was my power working against the law of gravity to go up each step. Upon entering that plane, what did I do? I sat down on a comfortable seat, many times upgraded the first class because I was flying way too often, and I just sat there and I relaxed. 
Then when it was time for the plane to take off, it would taxi down that runway, and after a while, it would begin moving faster and faster down that long runway. Its speed increased second by second until what happened? It left the earth, and it rose up into the sky. The force of gravity was, was seeking to pull that plane back down to earth. But guess what? There was another law in operation, wasn't there? It was working against that law of gravity. It was a new law. It was that law of aerodynamics. Now, understand, I know nothing about the law of aerodynamics. But the cool thing is I didn't need to. You see, I was committed to the plane. And because I was relaxing in that plane, I was in the plane, I was part of that plane, I rose in triumph with the plane. The triumph of that plane was my triumph. Its speed was my speed. All of its possibilities were mine as well because I was inside that plane. Friends, this is the way it is with the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. I don't need to understand, you don't need to understand all of the theology behind it to benefit. All you need to do is simply commit yourself spiritually to Jesus Christ. Just as I did physically to that plane when it was taking off. Look, we're as strong as that in which we put our faith. If your faith, if it is resting in Jesus, then you're as strong as he is. Jesus Christ can triumph in your life. He can do that without any help from you. There are many who fail to trust in the Lord. Many who fail to remember that God can, regardless of your past, save you and serve you and love you. And as a result, what do they do? They live their entire lives defeated and discouraged. Friends, it doesn't have to be that way. Maybe there's someone here this morning and you've been plagued with doubts about your salvation. You struggle with overcoming the fears about following Christ. You just think God won't want you. You know he doesn't want you in his kingdom. I've done too many bad things. God won't accept me. And you're just so sure of that. And you're not sure of anything else that Christ said. Maybe you're here and you know that you're not saved. But today the Holy Spirit has spoken to your heart. And maybe today you're ready to come to that saving faith. Understand God's calling. He calls you into himself and he knows what you need. And so do you. You may be asking, can God, can he really save me? Can he do that? You know my past, God. You know what I've done. You've seen my life. Can you save me? I invite you to find out for yourself because, friends, yes, God can. Bring your doubts. Bring your fears. Bring your questions and lay them to rest. Lay them at the feet of Jesus. Yes, God can save you. Let him do it today. Let's pray. I want to thank you for listening to the message today. I pray that this message somehow has touched you and created within you a passion for action for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you have any questions or you need to make any decisions or you just need to talk to someone, I encourage you to contact your local pastor. And if you don't have one, if you don't have a local church, you may contact me through the church office at 620-336-2777. We'd love to see you on Sunday mornings in church for our celebration service. It's a great time of fellowship and worship of our Lord and Savior. Come join us. We know you'll be blessed. And thanks again for listening to the Cherryvale First Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. And have a blessed day.